Muted. There I am. Hey. All right. Let's uh, let's grab a seat. So the, the the quicker that I start preaching, the quicker we get to pie, right? I, I got to tell you, it's unfair. It always happens that I get to be the one to preach whenever we have food in the back, and you're all sitting there just salivating and shh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> My wife doesn't. <laughs> She's the last one standing. That's really funny. Uh, all right, so we are in a series on how not to read the Bible, right? And it's kind of a confusing sermon series title for many people, I think. I've kind of heard little whispers because it kind of comes off as though we don't want you to read the Bible, which is not the case. So say this with me, Pastor Jamie hopes I will read my Bible, okay? Pastor Jamie hopes I will read my Bible. Exactly. I do want you to read your Bible. I just want you to read it deeply, and I want you to read it thoughtfully, and I want you to be able to read it with some skill, because without some of these things that we're teaching you, the Bible is a very confusing thing. And what happens is if we don't have these skills, we come to the Bible and we read over the difficult parts, right? We just, we love the nice parts, right? We love the, the, the love your neighbor as yourself part. We get a little confused by it, but it sounds nice. We really like the Jesus loves us parts. We like, we like the parts that teach us to be kind and generous. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That, we like that stuff, and it, but it's, it's difficult. But then we come to the hard stuff, and we just kind of like, I don't even know what this means, or I skip over it, or we move past it. Or some of us come to it, and it causes our faith to shake and waver. And so we want to teach you how to come to these hard spots in the Bible and actually read through them and not read over them, you know, or read around them or read somehow underneath them, but to actually go through them and hear what God might be saying to you. So let's a quick recap of our series so far. First thing we did is we looked at some basic Bible reading principles, and they go like this. I'm going to have you help me out with them. Are you guys ready for a little audience participation? So I know some of you are like, wait a minute, I don't know the answer because I wasn't here for that week. It's okay. Just mouth the words, but pretend you know something. Even you, whoa, whoa, like that if you have to. All right? So the first principle is this. Never read a... That was really poor audience participation. <laughs> And I'm a little nervous because we've repeated these almost every week. Uh, it's out of order. That's the problem. And this is my, my fault. So we're starting at the bottom. We're starting. Here's the answers right here. Have Thank you, Kathy. Never read a Bible verse. Or you might have to believe in unicorns, right? Because there are some things in the Bible that talk uh, that throws in unicorns. If you're reading the old, old King James, there's different things. And if you read just one verse, it could actually cause you to have some really weird theology, some really weird ways of believing in God and living it out in the world. We need to look at the whole Bible, which is why, number one, the Bible is a library, right? It's not just one book, but it's 66 books written over 1,500 years by, uh, now it's a number, it just went out my head, I'm going to say 60 different authors, but I don't think that's right, 40, see, what was the number? Shoot. Oh, good, thank you, she forgot too. It doesn't actually matter all that much, but the point is a lot of different authors over, over 1,500 years with just all these different cultural periods, different history, different things going on in the world. So every book is different, and every book must be read differently. So we can't just read one Bible verse and stack all of our belief on that one thing. We've got to read the whole arc of it and see what all of the library has to say. 
And then we have this big one here in the middle, which is the Bible was written for us, but not to us, right? It was written to people in a different culture, a different time, a different place, with different values, different things going on in the world. The news in their day did not involve Ukraine and Putin. It involved King Sennacherib, or it involved the Babylonians, or who knows? I mean, all sorts of different things. So we have to look at all of it. And the one that's not on here is one of the most important ones, which is this, that the whole Bible points to, see if anybody knows the answer, Oh, there it is. Nice. That's what I was hoping for when we started. The whole Bible points to Jesus, right? And I loved how Heidi said it last week as she was preaching on women in the church. She said this. She says, when I get confused about what I'm reading in the Bible, I look to Jesus. And we want to encourage you to do that too. If something in the Old Testament is confusing, the whole Bible is actually pointing to Jesus somehow. And sometimes it takes us a while to figure that out. But you can always look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, but also the perfect image of the Father. We can always look to Jesus. And when we get confused, I want to encourage you to go there. So from that, we use those principles to look at two big topics so far. First one was this. Does the Bible support slavery? And we looked at this. It like kills thousands of Egyptian children in order to free his people from slavery. And then immediately instructs his people how to make their own slaves. Right? Is, is God pro-slave? Is he pro-slavery? And we looked at the reality that the, the time was that the Bible was not, God did not invent slavery, but people invented slavery. And the Bible was not written to tell us how to have slaves, but written in the context of slavery. And as you look through all of Scripture, reading the whole library, we see God systematically, step by step by step, dismantling slavery and making all people equal under the Lord. The whole Bible is pointing to God tearing down the horrors of slavery. And a reading of Scripture like that, as, as people read Scripture deeply and not just read a Bible verse, we found that that actually fueled the hearts of men and women to end the horrible slave trade of the 1800s. Men and women like Harriet Tubman and William Wilberforce and Frederick Douglass and all the way into the 1960s, Martin Luther King and the fire of his preaching was fueled by this sort of reading of scripture, a deep dive and looking at the whole thing and looking at Jesus. And then we asked, Heidi asked this last week, is the Bible misogynistic or does, and does it support the domination of men over women? And the first question that I heard is this, and this is like hush women. I, I just, I like the word hush. Hush. Shh. You imagine somebody putting their finger on their lips. Anyway, does the Bible like shut women down? Is it anti-women? And after the sermon, Heidi got this question, and I'm not going to say who said it. It's a good question. And I, I'm out of another audience participation moment. You ready? The question was this. Does this subject really matter? Now, women, let me ask you. Does the subject of the Bible sh telling women to be quiet in church, does it matter? Yes or no? Okay, men, apparently they're very passive about it, so... Women, does the, the subject of God saying, or, Jesus, or Paul saying you should be silent in church, does that matter to you? Yes. Yes, it does. And that's a part of why it should matter to us men. 50% of the church has been shut down for a very long time. And so we need to keep fighting and looking and working and looking to have a reading of Scripture that helps us understand who this partner beside us is and how God has made them to be and to release them to a full ministry life, a full life to do whatever God calls them to do. One of the things that I have 
If I have pride in something, <laughs> I think it's this, that in our church, little girls are saying, I think I might be a fireman or the president or a pastor. When you hear a little girl say, I might be a pastor, man, my heart sings. I get so excited to see that changing in the church. So we see and we looked and we saw that the Bible was written in a misogynist culture, a culture of domination of men over women, and that God has systematically been dismantling that system and releasing women into places of authority and empower. He's been gifting them and sending them out. So we see apostles like Junia, who is also happens to be named, we named one of our chickens after Junia. She's our apostle chicken. Um, so chickens, apostles, I don't know. Anyway, uh, we see God dis dismantling this system and looking at men and women in the world and saying, look, that's the way the world is. They have slaves. Women are subservient. Women are property. Not so among you. You will be different. You are called set-apart people. So today we're going to look at the scripture and we're going to ask this big question. Do we have to choose between the Bible and science? And this has been a big argument, especially in the last 100 years or so in the church. It's kind of tore people apart. I have three goals in my sermon today, which is a big deal, and the fourth one is to get us to pie, okay? Not the number pie, but to actual pie. Uh, so hopefully, first of all, I want you to see how much you have in common with scientists when it comes to creation. I want you to understand that even people who don't believe in God, you have a lot in common with them. Uh, secondly, I want to show you the pathway of orthodox belief. Orthodox is, is the word that's used in church circles that means right belief. It's like there's, there's things that we believe that are true and correct, and there are things that are out of bound. And I want to show you the pathway when it comes to creation and science, what is orthodox, okay? And lastly, I want to give you the freedom to use your brain. Say, use my brain. Use my brain. To use your brain and explore creation. Explore what God has done in this beautiful world that's given. Now, again, the question, is this important? Is it important? And I want to say... Heck yeah, this is important, partly because it just fascinates me, all right? This is one of those things where I could ramble on for three and a half hours on all the cool things that I learned this week, that actually the last two weeks, because Heidi preached last week, so I had two weeks to write this sermon, and I learned all this stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is so fun, it's so amazing, I'm like filled with wonder. And so it's important to me, but it's important to the church, because people outside of the church People who are immersed in the world of science and education and television and advertisement and, and the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and the Fossil Hunter people, they, they struggle to see the church as a relevant thing because they look at it and they say, oh, man, your beliefs are so antiquated. And they even kind of make fun of it. Well, there's these great memes. Let's see if Leary can find it. It's a picture of Jesus riding a dinosaur. Do you got that one, Leary? It's coming any second now. There it is. Look at this. First of all, let's all just admit this is amazing, right? Jesus riding a dinosaur, it's just amazing. And it says up there, even though we know dinosaurs survived the flood on Noah's Ark, we don't know if Jesus ever rode them, but he probably did, right? So people outside the church look at us and they're like, hey, guys, got these weird beliefs. All these dinosaur things, they don't show up in the Bible. They're not on Noah's Ark. And you got this, all this fossil record and you're like, God made it in seven days and People exist at the same time as dinosaurs, but scientists don't say people existed with dinosaurs. And then we go to these parks that, uh, if this is out of a park, the Noah's Ark Park in Kentucky, which is a weird place for Noah's Ark. I don't know why it's there, but it says a stegosaurus roamed the earth about 5,000 years ago. Okay, 
down here it says, we are all free to enjoy mythology. But when it replaces reality, it becomes mental illness. It is unfair to inflict this upon a child. The world outside looks at a church that says, we believe in a Genesis 1 version of creation, and says, your, your thoughts are taking you toward mental illness. You are, have moved out of reality. And we here at Pullman Foursquare talk about this all the time. The ultimate reality is God. And if we are not living within God and God within us, we're not living in reality at all. And so we want to live in reality. We want to deal with reality. So people outside the church are at, at worst, at best, looking at us as antiquated, at worst is seeing us as, as peddling a mythology that, that leads to mental illness in children. They look at the Bible at being odds with all the evidence of science, and they choose to believe science and to reject the Bible. Then people within the church, when they hear this and they see this happening, often get defensive and angry and argumentative and suspicious of people who believe differently. And we don't know how to love people that think differently than us. We don't know how to treat them well because we think it's an argument or a fight. And I want to say this at the outset. Defensiveness, argumentativeness, anger, and suspicion are not fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> okay? God did not make his people, he's like, you shall be defensive and angry and suspicious and hateful. He says, no, you're going to be loving and joy-filled and kind and peaceful and patient with people and gentle, gentle in your responses to people and self-controlled. These are the fruit of the Spirit, and God wants this to be born in us. The second reason this is so important to us is that I think the greatest threat to the church is not from outside. And many people have treated science as that thing that's the threat to the church. You're looking all the way back to Darwin, and you can look at the Scopes monkey trials in the 30s and 40s, somewhere around in there. I can't remember the history time, but <laughs> I'm looking at a history teacher, aren't I? Like <laughs> he's silent. He's like, no, that's not the time frame. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it, it happened before I was born, but I think while the theater existed, so somewhere in that time span. Anyway, the whole you know, there was this big fight over evolution. Is it real? And Christians saying it's not, and it can't be taught in our churches, and and, uh, you know, so we see that this science thing may be an outside threat to the church that we have to fight. But the reality is the greatest threat to the church is inside the church. It's us and how we treat others. It's an exercise in missing the point when we get all upset and angry about things like evolution and evolutionary science versus a creation science. We disqualify half the church when we say women can't serve. We, we allow just a few men or white men specifically to have the power. It's the same thing happening over and over again, history repeating itself. We disqualify people outside the church from having anything to say to the church or ever becoming a part of the church. We cannot and will not allow that to happen. And we cannot allow ourselves to divide over what's right and what's wrong entirely in belief. We need to learn to have a generous orthodoxy and allow others to live amongst us and with us and to be in conversation with us. Right now, we see that it's an in or an out sort of situation. If you do not read the creation story literally in some set sects of the church, some parts of the church, you're just not in. You're out. If you think that God may have used evolution, you're, you're believing a lie. 
And conversely, on the other side of this is if you, if you do believe in a seven-day literal creation period, then you're a loony, okay? That's what so many scientists and science-minded Christians would say. When we get in this argument, we're dividing ourselves over it, and the churches are getting smaller and smaller and smaller until just this week Pew Research released a report that said by 2070, which means I will be 95 years old, the church will be a minority in the United States because we keep dividing and getting smaller. So let's tackle this, this idea of creation and what God has said in his word about creation. First of all, the Bible was written for us and not to us, right? Because understanding scripture is difficult because it can be hard to understand and it requires some training to pull out truth and right belief, we need to remember when it comes to creation, the scripture was written for us but not to us. That means the people who read the scripture originally saw it differently than we do. In fact, I have another uh, little picture coming up here. I have a lot of slides. This one here, it says, the holy babble, okay? Do you notice the, the misspelling down there at the bottom? The holy babble. And it's looking at, this is somebody from outside the church who's read the scripture and is reading Genesis 1 and 2 and pointing out all the times that there are inconsistencies between the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In fact, if, if you start there and you pay close attention, you will see that they contradict each other in many ways. And the reason this is, and the reason this is so difficult for people outside the church and so difficult for many of us within the church is because we haven't been trained. We don't know the culture. We don't know the language. We don't know how Hebrew poetry works. In fact, I read one scholar who said this. If you don't know how Hebrew poetry works, if you don't understand parallel Hebrew parallelism, and if you can't read an ancient Hebrew, when you read this text, you will miss 30 to 60% of the meaning of it. They're presenting two opposite things in contrast to one another to create a point. But we read it and go, wow, these seem to contradict each other. And if they're contradicting each other, then the Bible can't be true. We're asking the wrong questions of Scripture. The world of the Bible that it was written in had extremely different cosmology than the world that we live in. You guys know the word cosmology? I really feel smart when I say it. So I like using the word cosmology. Cosmology is, is it's your belief on how the universe works, okay? So in our cosmology today, right, we know that the earth revolves around the sun, right? We know it goes around the sun, and it, we know that earth tilts on an axis, and that's how it gets seasons. We understand all these things. We understand that gravity is a thing, correct? Like if you were to let go of a pencil in the air right now, it's going to fall and hit the ground, and we know that's because of gravity, we have all of these little sciencey things that we have n really no clue. We don't think of them as science. We just understand how the world works this way. The world of the Bible was written like this, though. This is the view of the Bible. First of all, they had no clue about gravity. In fact, this is weird. It's crazy to me. It was 1600s when they figured out that gravity was a thing. 1600s. It's only 400 years plus ago. Did I do the math right? Please say yes. Yes, Jesus. It was okay. All right? They had no idea. They, they had no uh, concept that the sun revolved around the earth until the 1500s. So Martin Luther was nailing his theses to the door of the church the same time Galileo and Copernicus were figuring out that things were backwards from how we saw them. In this view, this is the o Old Testament view of the Bible. This is how they saw the world. They saw the world as flat. They saw that it had pillars of uh, the pillars of the sky, that it was the mountains that actually held up the sky that under the earth there was pillars that held things up, and in the middle of that was Sheol, the he basically hell. 
the outside of that was of the abyss of waters because you'd go to the edge of the ocean and as far as you could see was just water, right? But then they looked up to the sky and they saw, oh, there's clouds. That's the vault of heaven. But when the clouds weren't there, what did they see? Blue. They con their concept of the world was that we lived in a bubble of water with an air bubble in the middle of the bubble. And that water, there was an ocean above us. And past that ocean, that's where God lived. So if you don't have this in your mind, when you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, you're going to take your concepts of, of science and cosmology, how the world works, and apply it to the Old Testament. When they're, they're living on a flat earth, they're seeing things different. And it doesn't make them crazy. It just makes them them. It's just who they were. It was written to them, but it is for us. Here's the good news. Those who have gone on before us, those who have died in the faith for generations before us, they have left for us a biblically defined sense of what is right and what is wrong that we can stand on and we can take to Scripture when we don't understand this and when we don't understand what it's saying and we can go, wow, this seems to be off in left field, but the tradition of the church is that we believe this. This is orthodoxy, and they've given it to us in many forms, and one of the best that I would recommend for you to memorize is called the Apostles' Creed. And this morning is a little segue through the message. I want to uh, uh, say it together. Can you guys, would you guys be willing to do that? Now, this is usually a statement of belief, and so you may not agree with all of them. You may not agree with everything in this statement of belief, but this is traditional orthodox Christian belief, and if you find as, you're, as we're reading this out loud, you go, I don't believe that one, you don't have to say it. Fair enough? Fair enough? I'm giving you, so you have free will here. You have all the free will you want for what you want to agree with and what you want to disagree with. But no, this is the line that the church has made, right? Okay? So traditionally with the Apostles' Creed, we stand to read this. Okay? So I'd like to make you do that. <laughs> if you are able to, would you stand? And we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together, and it will be on the screen. Right, Leary? <laughs> everybody, everybody agreed for Leary. Thank you. All right. It goes like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. You be seated. So orthodoxy, that is right belief. And we want to uh, define the pathway of orthodoxy when it comes to creation. Because the reason I want to do this is because I want to show you how wide the road really is. A lot of people conceive the church as having a very, very narrow viewpoint, right? Like, Christians are so narrow-minded. Well, the truth is the Christian church is extremely broad and extremely wide, so we want to start with this statement, okay? I want to couch everything I'm about to say in this. And I'm going to have you repeat it after me because, again, I want to keep you awake for pie. Ready? God can do anything he wants. 
okay? Right there. God, let's just start right there. So let's all say it together. God can do anything he wants. If there is a creator, he lives outside of time. He lives outside of this universe. He created all these things. If that individual is there, then he can do whatever the heck he wants, right? So all of the things that I'm going to talk about need to be couched in that. So I'm going to use this little whiteboard. Heidi is the whiteboard queen, and I'm just going to be a person that scribbles on it, okay? So we're going to start with this word, universe. And this is going to teach us the pathway to orthodoxy. We're going to ask this first question. Did the universe have a beginning? Yes or no? And I'm going to put a no over here and a yes. Okay. This is the first question we have to ask. Would you believe me if I told you that until around 1900, many, many scientists believed that the universe had no beginning and no ending, that it existed eternally, which is why we talk about the universe being God nowadays. Well, the universe has done this, or the universe is leading me this way. We combine our spiritualism with our science that says it never had a beginning or an end, and this is where we get. So in orthodoxy, if we say no to that answer, we have just stepped outside of orthodoxy. But if we say yes, and 90% of scientists today say, yes, it had a beginning, we're orthodox. Ta-da, let's all give it a cheer. Yay. Okay. The next question we're going to ask, whoop, down here. See, and we believe from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, right? Second one is caused. Okay, that's a question, and that's a, that's a D, whether we believe it or not. Caused. So, did something cause the universe to be created? Was there some event that happened to cause the universe to be created? To my knowledge, I don't think there's anybody that says no to this at this point. But if you do say no, this is hard. There's a lot of pens. I need Vanna White up here. Okay? You're out of orthodoxy if you say no, nothing caused it. But if you say there is a cause, some sort of a cause, guess what? You are in orthodoxy. Hooray! Most scientists believe the universe had a cause. Even Buddhists believe that at one point, the whole universe was shrunk down into a little black ball of super dense matter before it exploded into life. All right, the next question. So, but we believe, uh, go, go back one more, Leary, for me. Psalm 33, 6a, the Lord merely spoke, okay? He spoke, there was a cause, and the heavens were created. All right, then the next question we have to ask ourselves to get this pathway to orthodoxy is personal. In other words, this is really tough. I should have practiced this. Okay, in other words, was this an impersonal, just scientific, like, like a, an accident? Was it an accident? Was it chance that it just happened? Or was there some sort of deity, entity, that was involved in setting and sparking everything into motion. All right? Now, some scientists say no. Some scientists say no. In fact, there, but they are few that are saying no. And those are the, your extreme atheists. And then you have some that are kind of in the middle who are unsure, and those would be your agnostics. Like, I don't think we're going to be able to know. And then you have a good portion of scientists who say yes. Now, if you say no totally, you are over here, and I'm going to switch pens just because it's too much. If you say no, you are over here at out of orthodoxy. But if you say yes, that there is a personal entity of some sort out there that, that started all this, and you were in orthodoxy. 
And from, uh, from Psalm 33, 6 through 9, completing that, that psalm, it says this, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. And look at all these personal pronouns in here. He breathed the word and the stars were created. Uh, whoops, he breathed and the, st the stars were born. He assigned the seas its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Remember that picture of, of cosmology, how the universe works? Uh, he, he let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began and it appeared at his command. So our belief is that there is a personal deity that caused the beginning of the universe. This is orthodoxy. Next question. What is the orthodox view of the Christian church? So what I'm going to show you now is really Christianity because I want to tell you that right now, the yeses all the way down to here are Buddhism, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, and Christianity. The four world religions all agree on this orthodox belief up to this point, and most scientists believe things up to this point. God can do anything he wants. Sorry, I gotta take a drink. My mouth is all dry. There we go. If we come back here and we say that there was not a personal entity, we have to ask this question of how did the universe come to be? And they look, and they look purely at science. And many scientists, uh, one man in particular, and I left his book at home. I was going to bring it with me. Uh, he is the head of the Human Genome Project, and his name just left me. Oh, gosh. Do you remember the name of the author, Heidi? Oh, shoot. I just read his book, and his name's gone. Anyway, he started over here as an atheist. And as he studied science, he goes, there has to be a personal God. That's it, Francis Collins, thank you. Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, great book he wrote called The Language of God that explains all this. Um, he's looked, he started as an atheist and he moved his way across to agnostic to I believe that there is a God and that that God had to create and Christianity seems to explain it the best. And it's beautiful what his work is doing. The science doesn't really have an answer of why. But Christians look and we have to ask two questions, why and how. Why did God create and how did he create it? Now, if we read the scripture closely, we will see that God created the heavens and the earth for community, motivated by love. He just wanted to share. He just wanted to share his life and share with us and that we might share with one another the love of God. That's why he created this whole world. And that's one of the reasons that church is so important, because this is one of the only places where we have the kind of community that God intended for. But the how is the big question. So we still have a beginning caused personal. Now there are as many as eight to 12 different theories that fit within orthodoxy that are Christian views of how God created the heavens and the earth. And really quickly, first is young earth creationism. That is, I gotta find this in my notes, make sure that I'm doing this all right, here we go. Young earth creationism says, that reading the scripture, if you read it literally and you follow the timeline backwards, the earth is between five and 8,000 years old. When we look at science and we look at the world, we misunderstand what we see. We don't understand the, how fossils are formed. We, we think that it takes millions of years, but it's really a short time frame. Um, it might even be a conspiracy to discredit the scripture. Personally, I can't buy into this view of creationism, but I want you to know. It says that there was a beginning, that there was a cause, and that it was God that did it, and it's personal. So it is orthodox to believe in young earth creation. I can't buy into it, but it fits into orthodoxy. Secondly is this modified version of it, which is called the appearance of age. 
And that is a modified young earth that says, it takes the big problem of like carbon dating out of there. And it says, when God created the heavens and the earth, he made it look old. It wasn't very nice of him, was it? It's like, here's the keys to a new car. It's actually got 150,000 miles on it, but you know, it'll be okay. It, it's, he, he just, it's like God is lying to us. That's why I can't buy into that one. But again, it says there was a beginning, that it was caused, and that it was personal. So it is orthodox. It is a yes. It fits on the road of orthodoxy. Thirdly, the one I'm gonna, I'm gonna only gonna highlight a few. I can't do all of them, obviously. Uh, the gap theory, and that says that when you read Genesis one and two, that they are literal days. You know, on day one God did this, on day two God did this, on day three God did this. But when it uses the word day, it, it's just like it's the same word in the Hebrew Bible as the day of the Lord which is not a physical day, but it is a period of days. So we could have, we could have a million years and be one of those days. That, that word is so ambiguous, it could mean anything. So when we look at the Bible God created in a day, it could have been a million years for that first day. It could have been a million years for the second day. It could have been a billion years for all we know. Again, is it orthodox? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was God who did it. It was personal. How he did it? Orthodox. The last two that I want to do, these are the two that I kind of come closest to personally. Okay? And this is not me saying personally doesn't mean you need to believe it too. You can hold any of these. Uh, intelligent design. That when God created everything and set things in motion, he put into the DNA of us and in literally into the programming of everything else this, this evolving ability to adapt and change and become something more that there was an intelligence in the design, right? It's, it's adaptive, and it becomes something more. And so we see God created the heavens and the earth, but it was formless and void. It started at, at chaos, and it moved its way to what we see today, you and me. It allows for evolution to be a part of the theory. And they, people even read the scripture and go, look, you can even see the steps of the evolution of humans here. As they, when the story of Cain and Abel, they're moving from an agrarian society, or a uh, hunter-gatherer society to an agrarian society. These are the intelligent design people. And again, they say that there was a beginning, that there was a cause, and it was God who caused it. So it is orthodox. Uh, Francis Collins, he is the one that uh, really coined this one, which is theistic evolution. It's a belief that God created the world, he spoke, and bang, it came into existence. That God created the perfect circumstances for the entire universe to happen in the way that it did. And it created the conditions, the improbable conditions. When you look at all of the science that is out there, the universe is a vastly inhospitable place. It, it, is, it is a miracle that life exists here. And that God spoke and created and guided evolution along the way so that we come to this place where we know that humans who are capable of knowing God can share in community with him. Again, it has a beginning. It is caused by God, a personal God that can be known. It is orthodox. Now, there's a lot of variations that I didn't mention. But do you see how wide the road is? From people who believe it was a very, very literal seven days to people who believe that it goes billions of years. And all of us, though, believe that God did it. And he did it for a reason. And these people on us whole spectrum are literal Bible readers, okay? They lead, read the Bible, but they just read it differently. What does all this mean for us? First of all, that the, the idea of biblical orthodoxy on any issue is a wide road. It is not so narrow as we like to think. 
And it's meant to help us be united and hold us together and not to divide us, right? We should be able to be in this room and have people on one side of the room who believe that the world was created literally in seven days and that fossils are, are, are fake. And then we should be able to have people on the other side of the room that believe it lives billions of years. Of, but we all believe in this one God. That is what unites us. And our beliefs are not weapons. They're just meant to be points of conversation that are held in humility because at the end of the day, oh, this is a really important thing, so I want you to say it with me. Write it down. I don't know, <laughs> right? Not a single one of you were there, right? I hope. Is anybody here that old? Uh, anybody want to claim to be that old? I don't think so. We weren't there. Moses wasn't there. He's writing a story down as he understands it from God. And it's not the point. The point is the why, not the how. Secondly, we don't have to choose between faith and science. We don't have to turn off our brains as Christians. We don't have to reject scientific evidence. We can use our heads. Congratulations, God gave you a brain and you get to use it. You don't have to turn it off. That St. Augustine, who Heidi mentioned last week, he was one of the early church fathers. He was a really brilliant man, apparently didn't like women very much. He had some problems before he became into faith, so that's stuff you're going to have to work through. But he had some really good things to say outside of that. And this is what he said about science, and specifically about creation. In matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we find the Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways, without prejudice to faith that we have received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong so firmly and so firmly take our stand on one side that in the further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position. We too fall with it. Does that make sense? He's saying, look, you can have your belief. You can think what you want to think if it fits within this wide road of orthodoxy. But don't hold it so tightly that when further evidence comes to prove that you're wrong, it all comes apart. Because you will fall with your belief. And we've watched Christians do it over and over and over again. We hold so tightly to a specific belief that when evidence comes in to the contrary, we have to just let it all go. Hold things loosely and in humility. We don't have to choose between our specific beliefs and people. That's what all of this means. When we stay flexible, when we hold on to the things, when we use our brain, we can hold on to people and we can hold on to our faith. We don't have to be with odds at people who believe in science. We have way more in common than you would think when you look at this map. We don't have to be at odds with other Christians who think differently about how things were created. If you look at Christian leaders you respect today, from in people that have passed even recently, like all the way back into C.S. Lewis, and you look at Tim Keller, you, any Christian leader that you can think of today, you would be shocked at how wide the beliefs in how God created the heavens and the earth really are. And some of you have maybe been shocked that I'm like way more toward the evolution side. I mean, that's like, what? The pastor? The, like, yeah. We can hold this really wide set of beliefs. And I love our, our, our founder, Foursquare's founder, Amy Semple McPherson, Okay, I'll just be honest with you, if you go read about Amy Semple McPherson, you'll find, and this is, this may be harsh language, she's nuttier than a squirrel turd in a lot of ways, okay? Uh, she's pretty nutty, she's pretty out there. However, she had some really good things to offer and brought the gospel to the culture in her day. But she said this, this is really beautiful. In the essentials, unity, 
So if we've got this whole creed thing going on, let's, let's hold in unity to that. It gives us a wide road, but it says we believe these things to be essential and true. So let's have unity in that. But in the non-essentials, all of this little ex- you know, ancillary stuff, all this stuff that's out, all this wide road things that we can hold on to, let's, let's have liberty. Let's let people believe what they want to believe. Let's let them wrestle with their faith. And in all things, let's have charity. Or in her, that's her language for how we would say love. Let's just love each other in the midst of that. If somebody believes different about the things that are essential, let's love them anyway. If people believe differently about the things that are not essential, let's love them too. Let's just, let's be the kind of place that God created in the beginning where we can be with one another and experience the love of God. Creation and science, this also is one of the things that comes out of this is that Creation and science, as you study them and you look at the two things, it can actually move you to wonder. And that's where I've been the last two weeks. Just, I can't, just marveling. Not at, uh, like, uh, I love sitting and looking at a tree or a bird, and I can marvel at those things. But as I began to contemplate the universe, I've been going, oh my goodness, God is so amazing. This, and the, the detail and the balance and the, just the wonder of it all has thrown me into worship. And that's what you experienced, I think, this morning as I was leading worship. Was we, we experienced the presence of God together, and it ha- comes out of my experience with God. When you really look at s- the science of the Big Bang Theory, which is like bad words to a lot of Christians, and how improbable it is that any of us should even exist, it's hard not to believe in God. I mean, Pope Pius II, he was a pope back around 1900, right, in that, that time frame. He was one of the first, earliest adopters of the Big Bang Theory. And he looked at it and he said, I can't help but look and study this and go, God is so good. God is so amazing. It moved him to wonder and to worship. Reading and learning about how the natural world works this week has just been wonder upon wonder. And that's why the early church fathers called creation the second word of God. There's the Bible, God's word, and creation, the second word of God. And those who read and study and learn creation are not just scientists. They're studiers of God's word. Scripture points us to the God who created it all. And I love Psalm 8. It says this. As I studied, this is what kept coming to mind. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all the flocks and the herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swims in the paths of the sea. Creation and science points us back to this personal God who caused the universe in the very beginning. And it's this God who wants us to know him. And he wants you to be known by him. And he wants you to know above all that all of this stuff was given to you because he loves people, of which you are one. God loves you. And that is the story of creation. So we're going to close with a question, as we often do. And I wrestled and struggled with this question. And I didn't come up with a very good one. So... If you don't like this question and you want to invent your own question, or you already have a question on your mind that, like, I think God's asking me this, I want you to answer that question, okay? But if not, thinking about this wide road of orthodoxy, I want you to think about all the things that you believe in. And I want you to ask yourself this. How might how you hold 
those views keep you from loving other people well? How might how you hold your Christian faith and belief keep you from loving people who think differently than you? Let's take a minute and allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to us over that. And we're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to go eat pie. So I don't want you to be distracted by pie. Think about the question. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak for one minute. Here we go. Father, we know that the Apostles' Creed says a lot of things about what we believe about who you are and the story of creation and the story of your work amongst us. And some of those things can be confusing and difficult for some of us, maybe raises more questions. But I pray this morning that we would be able to stand on the first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that we can stand in unity around this point, that we believe in you. We believe that you created this world and you created this world so that we may know you. God, come to each of us this week. Reveal yourself to us in creation, through the beauty of a tree, the sound of the wind and the leaves, a bird, or as we marvel at pictures of distant galaxies or the, the balance of the universe and the, the fine-tuning of gravity and the speed of light and all of the things that have been created that make this whole universe move. May we be marveling at it, and in doing so, marvel at you, the one who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, two points of business. Number one, if you heard nothing else, you just heard me say science, 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 babble, babble, babble. Hear this. God loves you. Jesus loves you, and so do Heidi and I, and this church does too. That's the first most important thing. Second thing is we're about to have a pie down, okay? And everybody here that brought a pie... You're all going down because I brought a pie. So, and if you didn't bring a pie, you need to go and help pie go down because I cannot take home that much pie. Um, and thirdly, one of our pie judges is not with us, and so I need a volunteer pie judge. Somebody want to volunteer to be a pie judge because you got to go eat some pie. Tyler is raising his hand. What, what, did, you what, what did you say, Heidi? Uh, okay, Ashlyn and Tyler... Would you go join Casey in the back? you got to taste pie, and you have to eat all of them, and you have to vote mine, okay? Or Julie, where are you at? Because you're going to handle that, right? 
the getting the little pieces of pie for the judges? Is that what's happening? Okay. So judges go to the back. Everybody else, join us for pie. And if you've got questions about creation scientists, you can come talk to me, and I'm going to tell you, I don't know, but it's amazing. Okay, go. 